This is Fintech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest fintech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the Fintech Takes newsletter, your host, and self-confessed fintech nerd. Let's go! Hello, and welcome to the Fintech Takes podcast. Uh, My name is Alex Johnson. I'm the creator of Fintech Takes, and I am delighted today to be joined by the creator of the Fintech Brain Food newsletter, which I find infuriatingly smart and well-informed, Simon Taylor. Simon, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Good to be uh, in your world of Fintech Takes. And we're going to be doing something interesting today. We are, yes. We have sort of a fun idea for today's episode. We're calling it uh, Not Fintech Investment Advice. And uh, it's actually inspired by Mr. Taylor. If any of you, and I'm sure you all do, read his newsletter, you will know that there are four fintech companies featured every month that he finds interesting. And I've always really liked that approach of just sort of spotlighting specific companies. And so what I thought we would do is take this episode and basically each come to the table with two fintech companies that we find interesting for whatever reason, and uh, basically do sort of an ESPN Sports Center highlight countdown, uh, go back and forth sharing the fintech companies that we think are interesting, talk a little bit about why we think they're interesting, and then end maybe be with a request for the ecosystem, not of a fintech company that we know exists today, but one that we'd like to see or a problem that we'd like to see solved. Does that sound like a plan, Simon? That sounds like a plan. I'm excited to do this. I am excited to do this too. And I think you do this in your newsletter as well. I certainly sometimes do. But specifically for the purposes of this podcast, I need to start with uh, reiterating the name of this podcast, which is Not Fintech Investment Advice. So just as a disclaimer, Simon and I are not in any way recommending these companies. These are just companies that are interesting to us. This should not be taken as investment advice. Yeah, that would be genuinely terrifying if somebody did. So please don't. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'll, uh, we'll reiterate that perhaps several times during the course of the episode. Not Fintech Investment Advice. But With that out of the way, uh, Simon, I will let you go first. What's the first fintech company you have for us? The first fintech company is not very small, but it's probably quite new to your audience. Uh, The company is called Zero Dar. So they are the anti-Robinhood for India. So they have 10 million users. They have 15% of India's retail trading volume. But their whole thing is user trust is a key selling point. So it's not sort of how quickly can you trade? How often can you trade? Let's get everybody trading. It's actually, are you sure you want to buy that? Are you sure you want to sell that? Maybe not trading is the best thing to do. So if a stock looks weak, then ZeroDAR will tell the user, hey, you sure you want to do that? You know, the market's not necessarily buying this at the moment. If stock looks strong and somebody's trying to sell it, they'll just ask that second question. Now, I love it because it's so incredibly user first. Mm -hmm. It's user advocacy baked into the product Mm -hmm. and it's trust building. So I kind of love that. I've got questions about how they make that comply and all kinds of other stuff, but that was my fintech company. That's a good one. Okay, so anti-Robinhood is generally a pitch that I'm super open to because I think that as successful as Robinhood has been, I think to your point, a lot of the sort of challenges that are emerging with that model seem to be built around 
keeping users engaged in the process and building in trust. And it's funny, I, I had a similar company in this space on my longer list of companies that I considered for this, because I do think the retail brokerage space is really interesting. One question I have for you, maybe kind of bouncing it back, and maybe this is on your list of questions, how do they make money? Because that's the thing that I, I think is oftentimes kind of, they say like, demographics is destiny in politics. I kind of feel like in fintech, business model is destiny. And and I think Robinhood is a good example of when your business model requires trade, 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 be volatile, be very active, be very engaged, that's going to inform the design sort of inevitably. So what's the business model? Yeah, the business model is not like zero commission and we make it on payment for order flow. It's the other way around. There's a commission. So it looks like a traditional brokerage. And and as you're seeing, you know, as I think about it, there's many companies in the US, as you say, starting to take this user-centric default motion. I think of public as being one example. There are many, many others. You also see Robinhood is trying to position itself to be more user advocate. I think it was always very, very strong with Robinhood Snacks and the education side. Potentially launching that as a media brand might be some way to go. But as you say, very, very hard to escape the business model. The business model is gravity. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and I think the, uh, to your point about public, that was actually the company that I was uh, considering talking about. So I'm glad we're talking about this area because the other thing you, I think, see with some of these companies, and I should mention, Simon wrote an awesome rant in his newsletter about fintech in India, uh, which I'm guessing maybe is informing this pick. And if you haven't read it, you should you should definitely go back and read it. It's really, really good. And you know, I'd be curious to understand, I'll be honest, I'm not an expert in any way on the India fintech market and have spent very little time looking at it, but would be curious to understand sort of how this product or this, I guess, value proposition in that market fits within sort of the broader fintech ecosystem, because it's a little different than in other countries. Yeah. And the short answer is, I don't know. I'm not in India either. I think the the longer answer to that is when I was collaborating with the Tiger Feathers team, mm-hmm. uh, they described Zeradars being the one of the darlings of the Indian fintech scene. And they said part of the reason for that is, A, it's bootstrapped as a business, which I thought was particularly interesting, not traditional VC revenue. B, they've been doing lots of M&A. So they've been acquiring other promising adjacent businesses. And C, the founder is quite outspoken and, and has quite a good public persona and public presence. Mm. So they could be a couple of interesting things there to kind of noodle on. So I think their wedge is there were sort of also around timing. Mm-hmm. There's the Indian sort of financial services industry was quite sleepy until 1991. A lot of it was you know, government run. And if it wasn't government run, it was really for the wealthy only. And then you get this great democratizing thing happened uh, in sort of 91 and then onwards with the uh, invention of kind of the internet and the explosion in 4G led by a lot of local companies and then the explosion around the India stack and there's a whole conversation there. Yeah. So it benefits from all of this sort of social, political, demographic change, the technological change that goes on, and then the unique things about India that you don't really have to do KYC in the way you do in in the US because you've got baked in KYC. You have a free almost payment system um, that costs merchants nothing to use. So you have this fundamentally different set of building blocks, and those have been great catalysts to many, many businesses. 
Yeah, one. Well, I think to your point, I mean, it, the differences between markets are fascinating also in that they, I would imagine, got to skip over a lot of the sort of competitive dynamics that we've had in other markets, right? Like Robinhood, one of the reasons that their business model, I think, was attractive to them was that it offered a really clear distinction between themselves and incumbents in the market. They were trying to get that sort of um, retail trader. And that's where, you know, do it for free, do it as much as you want. Like that's where that whole sort of customer acquisition advantage really started. Whereas I would imagine that in India, they were more trying to solve the problem of people in this market just don't invest, right? Like if you're not really wealthy, you're not investing. We're not trying to position ourselves or counter position ourselves against some existing incumbents. We're just trying to come into the market and offer a solution that really has never existed for this segment of the customer base before. Uh, absolutely. That's a, a great analysis. And the thing I'd say just to kind of close this one out would be uh, you might see Robinhood start to evolve its business model and you might see Zero Dust start to evolve its business model. There are things you can do. And I think there's a lot of great entrepreneurs now trying to look at how, what's the right size of retail engagement with investment, as, especially as we sort of learn from this economic cycle. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a really interesting question. I, I've been wondering about that myself, just in terms of like product roadmap, where it goes, how do you sort of build out? How do you keep users on the platform, particularly given that we're in a bit of a, a down economic cycle or starting to head down? Like that's, I mean, in some ways, it's a good time to buy and to invest, but um, you're also facing higher costs and maybe less capital available. So I think that's all really, really interesting. Should we jump to the next one? Let's do it. Okay. All Go. Right. I'm, I'm curious. What's he going to pick? What's he going to pick, guys? All right. So I have, for my first one, a company called Link. And they are a little newer. They just came across my desk, I think, last week. Um, they uh, recently raised a $10 million seed round and then also a $20 million Series A. So reasonably well capitalized over the last couple of years. I would imagine some of those raises uh, were at least started in the works before the slowdown in VC funding, but they've got a good base of capital. And what they are trying to do is basically bring account-to-account payments powered by open banking to the U.S., And so they are leveraging the sort of open banking infrastructure, such as it is, that we have in the U.S. They claim to have about 95% coverage of U.S. bank accounts, which I think is code for, you know, we use one or multiple of the big data aggregators to connect accounts. And their value proposition is really built around enabling lower cost payment processing for merchants. So obviously, um, this is like the card network's uh, worst nightmare. They basically want to facilitate ACH-based payments. Interestingly, they offer multiple different sort of integration methods. So they're not really trying to force merchants to go down one path. You can do APIs embedded into checkout pages. You can do dynamic payment links that they generate that will send you to an outside payment page. Or they even have a, a Shopify app in the Shopify ecosystem that Shopify merchants can use. And you know, really, again, the core value proposition is it says, right on their website, you know, lower your payment processing fees by 70 to 80%, right? And that, Mm -hmm. I think, is pretty consistent with going from a large base of card transactions down to a greater share of ACH transactions, which are much cheaper. They do really, again, focus on everything for the merchant. So, you know, if you have developers that want to see our documentation, we have that. They have lots of reassurance around, you know, 
we take on the liability risk and basically guarantee the funds from the customer when we onboard them. So we're doing all of the authentication and KYC with the customer to make sure the funds are good. We're taking that credit risk. So they're really trying to take as much of the burden off of merchants as possible so that merchants can, I think, feel good about driving more payment volume in this direction. And you know, I'm fascinated by this. And Simon, I'd love your take on it because I know, you know, A to A payments are a much bigger deal in Europe than they are in the US. And I have some questions. I mean, I'm curious to see how this goes, given that we've tried this before, right? PayPal's initial deal before they got into accepting all payments was to try to push people towards ACH. The card networks are obviously very strong and well penetrated in the US. People like their rewards. So what do you think about this company? What does the user experience look like? I don't know if that was in your discovery, but like, what's the first time usage? Because that's been the real barrier in Europe, frankly. First time you go to use this thing, uh, especially on a laptop, if you're not in a mobile screen and you don't have your banking app that's ready to pop up, mm-hmm. that can be really, really painful. What? So now I've got to scan a QR code and I've got to do all this other thing. So did, did they describe that? Do you know the app? That's a good question. So they um, seem mostly focused on e-commerce rather than in person, which makes sense. And, you know, it's interesting you ask that, actually, because there was very little information either in the article I read or on their website about the customer experience. It was almost entirely just like, here's what we offer to merchants. Here are the benefits. Here's the documentation. And so I don't have a good sense for that, honestly. So... Plenty of companies do this in Europe already, as you say, and they all start out doing the same thing, which is we will reduce your fees. Why do they say that? Well, they say that because merchants hate fees. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) If somebody's going to have a 2% tax on everything you do, it'd be really nice to get rid of that because that's really eating into the margins. It's money in your pocket if you can get it back, right? Yeah. Well, and also in retail, margins can be razor thin in e-commerce sometimes. So like everything you do there really, really matters. Mm -hmm. And so the problem they all hit with e-commerce in particular is that shopper buying on their laptop. How does the laptop know which mobile banking app I use? How do I authenticate? How do I trigger the message to my mobile phone? Nobody's really solved that. One way to solve it is a QR code, but that's kind of janky, especially screen to screen. It's not a great experience, and a user would typically prefer to use... So you have this massive conversion and drop-off issue at the first-time usage. Mm -hmm. The second issue is then, okay, now you've reduced the fees, but how much volume is really coming through this thing? So if somebody does is a successful user, how many users are there? So the thing that Visa and MasterCard are really selling is 2 billion card holders. (laughs) That's what you're buying. That's right. So I think it's interesting, you know, why hasn't Stripe come out and really pushed this yet? And I I suspect it's because the demand cycle isn't there. Maybe it needs a competitor to go do it. Maybe the US is a good market to go do it because generally in Europe, you know, we tend to have the regulation for it, but not the uh, appetite to uh, have the entrepreneurs that go, go succeed at it. Although I will say there are some amazing folks out there, former well pay Amazon payments, you know, really good companies trying to build this in Europe. So, oh, and, and one other thing, uh, it made me think, actually, the primary use case you do see in Europe mm. is funding a fintech wallet. So I'm in my Robinhood equivalent in the UK, free trade, and I want to fund that wallet. 
okay, I can just click to fund it using my mobile banking app. And because it's already on the phone, it just up pops my other mobile banking app. I authenticate with my biometrics, funding's done. That is a beautiful experience. That's fast. So yeah. for mobile wallet funding, I think you've potentially got a wedge. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think contrasting the European customer experience with the US one is a really apt place to start. And that's kind of where I honed in on too, right? Like, what is the value to the customer? And that's, you know, the thing about all of these schemes to get around the card networks and reduce that 2%, they always are like, well, merchants hate fees. It's like, that's great. But merchants also like customers who want to buy stuff from them and customers like cards and are used to using cards. And so what's the value prop to the customer? And, you know, I was thinking about it in the context context of like how we use plaid in the US for you know linking accounts or account verification or account funding it's not terrible when you're setting up a new fintech app and instead of doing the micro deposits you can link the account and go through that whole experience log in that's great for setting up an account is faster than the alternative it's not anywhere close in my opinion to being good enough to work in an e-commerce transaction in real time right like if i'm checking out on someone's website you know i'm pretty used to these days being able to go yep yeah, pay with apple pay or pay with amazon or you know pay with visa direct or uh, enter in my card details but oh i've got a browser extension from capital one and it'll autofill a virtual card for me like we've done quite a bit to make that e-commerce checkout experience pretty fast given existing payment methods and the alternative of link your bank account. Okay, here comes the Plaid interface. Search for the bank that you want to offer. Connect that bank. Go through the secondary verification that you have with that bank where they text you or call you or send you an email. Like That's pretty clunky for doing all of that linking. And I do wonder if, to your point about regulation, we might not see real big adoption of this if and until regulators drive a better set of requirements around open banking in the US. And obviously 1033 is coming and there are going to be more rules and requirements here. But I feel like maybe our regulatory enforced infrastructure is not quite good enough or seamless enough because the experience you describe of like doing it on my mobile phone, oh, it detects what bank app I have. I just automatically sign in with biometrics and I'm away. That is not how it works in the US. Even if I'm using a mobile phone, I'm still kind of manually connecting those accounts. So to me, that customer experience seems like a big block right now. You start at the places where you're already using ACH and you have to type in your account number and uh, routing number, sorry, routing number to translate it, right? <laughs> those use cases, go attack those instead of attacking e-commerce because that's going to be hard to do. Or if you do attack e-commerce, the ace in the hole might be the data you get from open banking. So the whole thing with e-commerce, the reason buy now, pay later succeeded was one, there was a reason to use it. Yeah. Split the payment like that's consumer beneficial. But two, they reactivated consumers with the data they saw. They were bringing customers back to the website and back to the merchant. Now, can you do that with the open banking data loop in a way that cards can't do it? That would be an interesting one to think about. Yeah, no, I think that's a good call. I mean, buy now, pay later is actually, I think, a really interesting case study for anyone building in this space, because I think buy now, pay later sort of demonstrated two things, right? One is merchants do have a great deal of influence over customer behavior. And I think that's actually something that I 
underestimated maybe when buy now pay later was first getting started was like oh you know how much can merchants really push customers in the moment to use this other method and they actually have a great deal of influence when you pop up that offer at the right time and you frame it the right way and you make sure you have customer benefits so i think there is an ability for merchants to drive behavior maybe more so than i thought or maybe even more than most merchants thought before buy now pay later came through but to your point the other thing about buy now pay later is the benefits to merchants need to be kind of compounding and ongoing, right? I think it's actually very telling that buy now, pay later won, not by reducing costs for merchants, right? I mean, in fact, buy now, pay later is as expensive or more expensive than card payments. It benefited merchants by doing the thing that merchants are in business to do, which is sell more. And that could be conversion in the moment, or it could be rewards and loyalty and retargeting and driving more people back into the funnel, which is where buy now, pay later has sort of evolved. But like, I do think it's very telling that the most sort of impactful disruption to e-commerce from a fintech perspective came about not by trying to cut fees or reduce costs at all, but by trying to help sell more and make it easier for customers to buy. So there probably are some lessons there for anyone who's trying to sort of change payment behavior within an e-commerce flow. Fintech is really ad tech. Uh, e-commerce. That's right. Ultimately, and they look very, very similar. That's such a good, good point. Uh, the value proposition really here isn't fees. It's how many customers can I bring you? Selling cost reduction is a very different business case to selling more revenue. And who would say no to more revenue, especially if you can prove you're bringing more customers through the door consistently? That's absolutely right. Um, Simon, I'm going to cede my remaining time. Let's go to your third or your second fintech company, our third overall. So uh, the third company we're covering today is Ready Life. Ready Life helps renters get a mortgage approved if they pay nine months of rent via the debit card from Ready Life. Ah. So think of it as like, it looks and feels like a neobank, but you pay your rent through this neobank app. Okay. And then the rest of it looks like a neobank. It's sort of get paid early, peer-to-peer payments, like all of that kind of good stuff that you'd expect. This is interesting, though, for two reasons. One, neobanks don't really get a lot of revenue. They're not necessarily always the top of wallet. They're not getting the, they're not always getting the direct deposit and they're not making the big payments. But the way they make their money is that swipe fee, the interchange fee. So they're making a percentage of what you're spending. So if you're using it as a discretionary spend account, you're spending 200, 300, $400 on it a month, then making 1% of that or, you know, 0.5% of that is not a lot of money. But your rent payment might be a thousand, thousand and a half, maybe $2,000 in some cities. If it's really crazy, who knows? It's a much higher amount. They may have doubled the amount of revenue that most neobanks get just by insisting on that one thing. So that's really, really interesting point number one. Point number two is if a customer has consistently paid their rent on time for nine months, chances are they're able to pay their mortgage on time And chances are they're going to have to move a meaningful amount of money into that account in the first place to be able to do it. So I have questions and I have other challenges, but I'd love your gut reaction to that. 
I love this. I think it makes sense. I mean, I for a while now, I've been sort of banging this drum in my newsletter on, you know, the future of neobanks is neobanks grafted on to other problem areas, right? Where it's like, the point is not here's where my money goes and I get two day early access and I have this card. The point is that all of those are features around a larger benefit that I'm getting, which is why I chose to work with this company. And it's not just like affinity. It's not just like a marketing play, although that can be a component of it. It's really like what is a tangible longer term financial benefit that I'm going to get by working with this neobank by having my direct deposit with this company. And, you know, obviously home ownership, I think, is a huge, you know, potential sort of obviously benefit and just goal and aspiration that a lot of those customers would have. So that makes complete sense to me in terms of the way to sort of meld those two things together. I think if I'm remembering, Rick, because I think I have seen this company come up in some of my earlier research, they're particularly focused on sort of solving the home ownership gap for uh, minorities. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's right. And especially, I don't think it's exclusively for minorities, but there is definitely that focus. And it's also for people without a credit score or with low credit score histories. And so it's kind of giving you that foot onto the ladder is, is my understanding. Have you seen other things in this category that really stand out to you? And, and what makes this different? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely have. Um, I think that there's a very common category within the sort of credit builder world, which is we want to basically sort of convert rent payments into positive increases in your credit, right? And so there are a number of companies that basically will report your on-time rental payment history to the credit bureaus, which maybe are already getting reported if you're paying to like a very large landlord or someone who furnishes that data, but it's not required to be furnished. A lot of companies, particularly kind of smaller landlords and stuff, don't furnish that data. And obviously, as a result, renters who pay on time get no kind of credit for that in their FICO score. And that can be a factor that sort of holds back their path to to home ownership. So I think that that as a category is pretty well established and the credit bureaus like it, consumer advocacy groups like it, regulators like it. So I think in general, it's a pretty sort of well-established and good on-ramp to solving that part of the problem. I think the interesting part is, what do you wrap around that rent payment furnishing experience, right? And some people do kind of the very basic, like just debit card or just like, oh, we're going to give you rewards. Like every time you pay your rent on time, we're going to pay you rewards. We're also going to furnish this data and we have some sort of business model built around that. Some of them are more sort of focused on like landlords. And so the rental payment data and furnishing is the way that you bring renters in. But then on the other side of your platform, you have landlords landlords and you give them a whole property management app that includes lots of different functionality and like furnishing your renters data is just one other component built in. So it's more of a landlord play and they actually monetize through uh, fees assessed to the landlords that use their platform. So that's another way to go. I like this one though a lot because it's very focused on the consumer And I don't think I've really seen anyone else do a full sort of neobank experience wrapped around this value prop. And so I think that's really important. The other thing that's interesting is there is a lot of movement right now in the U.S. around, again, sort of solving this uh, racial home ownership gap, which continues to persist in the U.S. And one of the ways that they're doing that, and this is happening at the GSEs, so Fannie and Freddie, 
they are actually making changes to the way that they sort of consider qualified mortgages. So for a qualifying mortgage that is able to be resold to Fannie or Freddie, they are changing or sort of broadening their underwriting criteria to look beyond the FICO score. And one of the things they want to look very closely at is rental payment data and then also open banking bank account data. And so I would imagine that these guys are probably also involved in those discussions and trying to sort of advance the ball there, because the more you can open that up, the more lenders feel comfortable originating mortgages because they know they can be resold on the secondary market. And that was going to be my next question. Who's the lender and who's originating the mortgage? I don't know that they've solved that yet because it didn't say so in the small print, but my compliance brain was screaming like, who's going to be the person that that takes that bet and who starts writing those mortgages because you know it takes a long time sometimes for a mortgage to go bad and when it does it goes bad in a very big way and you need one heck of a balance sheet to be able to absorb those losses but also you know the us in particular is an interesting market for that in that there are sources of capital there are sources of credit at the sort of fintech level that are quite used to working with fintech companies that are quite creative in how they underwrite risk and quite good at being that partner. So who knows? Maybe it could happen. But what are your thoughts from a compliance risk management standpoint? Anything stand out? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, that's always the the challenge with innovating in the mortgage space, right? Is that you guys go first, we'll go second. Everyone wants to go second, no one wants to go first. I do think that is starting to change as it relates to sort of solving this home ownership gap. And I think I think there's two drivers there, right? One is there is just a lot of pressure just in the market from regulators, from consumer advocates for someone to go first, right? And I'll give you an example of this, actually. Um, both Bank of America and Wells Fargo have specifically committed themselves to doing a portion of their mortgage lending. And in fact, Wells Fargo is cutting back on almost all of its mortgage lending, except for this part that is focused on, we're going to do mortgage lending for underserved communities. And we're going to reserve a large portion of our capital just for that. We want to make money doing it. So we want to make good loans and take good risk. We're not going to lose money on this. But the primary goal first is right mortgages for underserved customers and underserved communities. So I think there is more of an appetite for people to go first and a sort of different risk allocation for certain amounts of capital inside of even very large banks. So I think that's really good. And I think to the extent that Fannie and Freddie can kind of smooth the path on the back end for those entering the secondary market, that just further accelerates that. The other thing, though, that I think is really interesting as it relates to actually like assessing the risk is... I think that as we get, again, going back to 1033 and open banking, once we get more sort of requirements and rules built around the amount of data that can be shared, I actually think that we can address this problem because in mortgage lending, you're obviously looking at ability to pay and willingness to pay, right? And as you referenced with willingness to pay, that's a really important component to mortgages because they're really long. They're, you know, I think the average tenure of a mortgage is like seven to 10 years, something in that range before it's refinanced or you sell your house. That's a long time to have that risk on your books. And so a lot of people are very nervous about underwriting mortgages solely based on ability to pay income. That's something that's important, but it's not the only component. However, if you use open banking data, you know, today in the US, most of the time, the amount of data that you can get is like 
the last six months, or maybe if you're lucky, it's the last year of someone's bank account data. But imagine in an open banking 1033 world, if you could get access to the last 10 years of someone's transactional bank account history, that starts to put you in the realm of being able to look more at willingness to pay and behavior over time, not just like cash flow and how much money they have today. And so it starts to give you a little bit more uh, flexibility to evaluate someone's willingness to pay beyond just looking at their credit score. And so I do think that open banking and sort of that cash flow underwriting is going to become a bigger part of mortgage lending as we move forward. Thank you for that, Alex. That was freaking awesome. I I actually had to grab my pen to start making notes. That was brilliant. Thank you, sir. The last company, though, surprised me, hit me. What, what, what's up? Okay. Well, so for the last company, I, I vacillated between a couple of different ones. But the one that I settled on, I think you're going to like this one, is a new company, had not heard of them before, called Golden Set Collective. And they're not even totally a fintech company, but they're interesting to me from a fintech perspective. So they just came out of stealth and announced that they'd raised a $10 million seed round. So well done there. And what they do is they make equity investments in creators. So Simon, just like you, if you were uh, going off on your own and being an independent creator, they might make a equity investment in you. And the idea is basically that they are investing in you, the creator as an individual and in your business. And so they give you capital. But in addition to giving you capital, they also essentially give you a whole sort of back office set of support functions to help you grow your business. So they have accounting services and legal services and, you know, services and people designed to help you monetize your business in new or different ways. Uh, I would imagine that just as we're seeing people like Mr. Beast get into like franchising and burger restaurants, that they would be thinking about like the real world implications of like, should you have a, a coffee drink or a hamburger or some line of apparel, like all of the different ways ways that we're starting to see creators monetize what they're doing, they basically want to provide not just capital to help you pursue those different business ideas, but like the sort of back office support necessary to execute those, which is particularly important to creators who spend so much time on content that they often don't have enough time to sort of think about the business aspects of what they do. And I found these guys really interesting, largely because it seemed like the convergence of a few different trends, right? So one is fintech has obviously stepped into the gap that banks have left in the market in terms of serving small businesses, micro businesses, solo entrepreneurs, gig workers, people who have a side hustle, creators. Like we've seen just a ton of different fintech solutions that are targeting that segment, all sort of based on the premise that we know that banks just don't understand these customer segments. And to a certain extent, even if they did, they don't have the sort of efficient technology and sort of customer acquisition to serve these customers profitably. And so they're just going to sort of ignore those. That's always been the case in small business. And basically, in this case, you just click on small business and pull that apart into all these different categories. And creators is a big one in a growing category. So I think that's interesting. I also think it's interesting that in a lot of ways, if you think about 
what you would want as like a small business owner if you went to a bank and got a small business loan. Yeah, it's nice to get the capital. The capital is nice. That's what I need to keep my business alive and keep it growing. But what I actually want in a perfect world is I want someone who I can get capital from and a whole bunch of these other support functions, right? And you just, you don't see this in other places, right? Like why shouldn't a small business loan come with expertise on accounting, legal, a set number of hours that you can get with a great graphic design team? Like, I don't know, like all of these other services, you don't see any of those bundled in with loans or financial services products that are targeted at business owners uh, or entrepreneurs but you probably should, right? And I think the reason that you are seeing that in this particular case, and this gets to kind of the VC angle to all of this is, Golden Set is taking an equity investment in these companies, right? So they are aligning themselves with the long-term financial interests of these creators and the companies that they're building, which gives them sort of a different incentive, and I think is why they're offering all of these sort of value-added services. So I don't know, when I saw this company, A, I'm a creator, so I was sort of intrigued just sort of professionally, but... B, I thought it was really interesting to think about what the future of small business and sort of micro business and solo entrepreneur financial services could be beyond the financial product itself. What what do you think? Yeah, it's a great, great pick. I'm definitely going to go check them out. Golden Set Collective. My immediate thought was, uh, when does the EP drop? Like, I'm definitely <laughs> keen to hear that one. But but I guess that's what, what they're playing to. They're playing to that audience. The second thing that came to mind was, I think Mr. Beast invested in a platform called Creative Juice. And that's a fintech company that, you know, really combines all kinds of standard things you'd expect. So easy account opening, integration with accounting platforms, no monthly fees or minimums, but then it goes deeper into the creative problem space. So it's like, here's a bunch of tools for you to collaborate with your team. Here's a bunch of financing solutions for you to take on a big, scary project in the future. You want to go do a video and it's going to cost half a million to a million and you're not going to see that revenue in a while. Well, you know what? We might have some financing solutions for you. So there's a whole bunch there. And then it's like a revenue dashboard for integrate TikTok and Patreon and Twitch and Instagram. If you're a creator these days, potentially, especially on the consumer side, you have to be in so many different platforms And this is a a really interesting trend where you can tell it's more like a fintech company if it's gone deeper into the problem space. And it's more like a bank if it's gone deeper into managing its balance sheet. And there's almost this bifurcation of the market. The people who have a balance sheet are getting bigger and bigger balance sheets and their products are becoming more and more generic. And occasionally they M&A and acquire a fintech company and kind of move their model back. But as you said, the big bank's model is predicated on consumer works nine to five has a salary we score them on that basis creator doesn't work nine to five doesn't have a salary is a small business but doesn't look like a a typical small business because they've got all of these other problems but there's a lot of them around the world so how do you go hyper solve for that and the closer you get to the customer problem the more of it you can solve but then potentially the more scale niche you become versus mass market. So it's that interesting, interesting trade-off. So do you think the investment incentive actually makes them a bad fintech company and more like a platform VC? Because that was sort of the worry I heard. Is it really fintech or is it really a VC? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, that's the other thing I wanted to talk about, right, is I do think there is something to the like, VCification 
of a lot of things that we're seeing in fintech, right? I wrote a while ago about this sort of new trend of fintech platforms that are offering home equity investments to homeowners, right? So it's like, get cash right now, no loan, no increase in your monthly payments. You're just giving us a small slice of ownership in your home. And after 10 years, you either have to sell your home and uh, cash us out of that stake, or you have to buy us out based on what the increase in value in your home has been. And so it's cheap on the front end to customers. You're not taking out a loan. You're not making payments. uh, There's no down payments. There's nothing like that. But it is really expensive on the back end because you're giving up ownership, right? And I, I think that there is some sort of fundamental questions we have to ask around like, as we sort of extend this idea of taking equity in things beyond the sort of normal realms that that's existed in, where does that stop being such a good idea, either for the end customer or the creator? Like, how does that potentially warp incentives? And I I do think that's a question that you'd want to think through, right? Like, if I'm a creator, and I have a perfect world in front of me where I have all these different options, would I prefer to get a straight up loan for my business in order to grow my business? Or would I prefer to get a equity investor who invests in me probably gives me more support and more sort of services that I can leverage to build my business, but is going to have an ongoing financial interest, right? And that's a hard thing to square with some. We know that in the the sort of VC-backed private company space that works. We know what that model looks like. You know, the VC takes a stake. They say, let us know how we can be helpful. They all specialize in their different areas. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, there's an acquisition or there's an IPO and they get cashed out and then they turn that money around and they put it back in more companies. With creators, I'm a little unclear as to what that looks like, right? Like, are you hoping that the creator's business gets acquired? Is that likely to happen if the creator themselves is not involved? Like, what is a Mr. Beast business worth without Mr. Beast? What happens if he gets tired and just doesn't want to do this anymore? How does that affect the equity that investors have in them? So I do think there are some really sort of tricky questions to ask around this sort of equity-focused value proposition. I think that, you know, historically, the reason we haven't done this is it was a pain to do all the paperwork to take an equity ownership in someone's house or in a creator or, you know, my um, my mom is a, a high school teacher and she sometimes jokes about, you know, every once in a while she sees a student come through her classroom that does some random awesome thing where they're like, oh my God, this is like the most awesome person ever. I'd like to take an equity stake in like that person. Like, I wish I could like buy stock in this individual because they're going to be awesome in the future. Like I get the impulse for doing this, but I, I do wonder if there's a downside. Well, remains to be seen. I think if any of these companies notice that we got anything wrong, do his. You know, we're on Twitter. You can reply to any one of our emails. I'd love to learn. And learning about all these companies is why we do this, Alex, ultimately, right? So it's super fun to explore this space. Do you want to end with our manifesting fintechs? Let's do it. Um, I'm not necessarily manifesting a fintech with this first one. I'm just manifesting a thing. I've seen so many fintech companies, Aspiration Bank, uh, TreeCard, that are consumer-focused, climate-conscious neobanks. And they might offer you discounts at certain stores that are climate-conscious or cashback, or you know they might do this other thing. And this other thing is they're very conscious of how they use their deposits. So if you have a deposit at one of these banks, the way they're using that will not fund fossil fuel development. It will not fund polluting with plastics or whatever the issue is that you care about. 
And the problem they've got is I have to choose that neobank over all of the other neobanks in the world in order to create that outcome in the world. And the thing I wanted to manifest is, why isn't that just a thing at all banks? And I know the answer, well, I, I know a piece of the answer to that is those banks have to be universal and they have to solve for, you know, legitimate businesses doing legitimate business and they're not allowed to switch off some of those things and you know they can't just be chasing identity politics and pr and all be seen to be doing that but wouldn't it be nice if we could just have a world in which i as a consumer was in control of how my deposit was managed imagine if it was like open balance sheet where is my 401k invested where is my cash ultimately i read a great stat somewhere and listeners if you can find it please do i wasn't able to in the prep for the show that 60% of all capital in capital markets ultimately can be traced back to a consumer somewhere. So your money, your retirement fund, your house, your equity, everything is ultimately funding the world we've created. What if we could change that? Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be interesting? What if you at least knew in the first place where all of those deposits were held? Very, very hard to do extremely hard to do. Still want it though. Alex, you're up. What are you going to manifest? I love that one, Simon. Um, I'm going to manifest a neobank. And this is one that I've wanted for a long time. And I actually do think, despite the fact that it's kind of a niche neobanking play, that it is one that has some legs, which is, I'd like to have a neobank for teachers. I come from a family of teachers, and I think generally over the last couple of years with COVID, we've sort of all gotten a new appreciation for teachers and the role they play in our society. And as I was thinking about it, one of the things that's interesting about teachers and has a very sort of financial services bent to it is teachers are probably the lowest paid highly educated professionals in our economy, right? Like you have to go to school for a long time to be a teacher. You have to get a great deal of education and certification in order to be a teacher. And yet when you go through all of that work, you don't end up getting paid like a lawyer or a doctor or an accountant. You get paid like a teacher, right? That to me opens up a whole world of interesting financial services problems that could be solved with a specific sort of neobank focused on teachers. And I would love that. I think that, you know, for example, one of the things I know to be true is that, um, at least in some school districts, teachers get paid for the entire summer that they have off, right? So they get a big lump sum payment at the beginning of the summer, take the summer off. And uh, particularly younger teachers who haven't quite figured out how to manage their cash flow, they come back to school in the fall. And guess what? They spent all that money, right? They spent a little more money than they were hoping to. And maybe they need a cash advance for uh, their paycheck just for the first like month so that they can make rent. That's not a service that exists that contemplates that sort of unique need that teachers have, but it would make a lot of sense, I think, right? Um, by the same token, I think there's all kinds of interesting ways to attack that market from a customer acquisition perspective. For example, all unions, teachers' unions, are required to offer multiple ways for their teachers to pay their dues and to just confirm membership in the union. What if you built a app, a very lightweight app that made it easy for school, for teachers unions to onboard new teachers and collect dues? What if that was the onboarding for creating the account in the first place? What if after you collected enough teachers within a particular school district, you went to that school district and said, hey, 
Instead of reimbursing teachers for field trips or other expenses with a check that's painful for everybody, why don't you just push the money directly to this account that we've already set up for them? Because we have 95% of your teachers already using our cards anyway. So I think there's all kinds of interesting flywheels that you could spin around teachers and a neobank for teachers. So even though I think this idea's time was probably more like 2021 than 2023, just in terms of the market and what VCs are interested in, I do think this is an interesting thing and I'd like to manage manifest this. I love that. Let's manifest it. Let's manifest that teacher's bank. The underpaid, the underserved parts of society. Maybe there's a way to bring that back around. Love the, love the detail there, Alex. This has been amazing. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you, Simon, so much for taking the time to do this. Uh, not fintech investment advice. This has been super fun. And uh, hopefully our audience has enjoyed it as well. Another plug for Simon and his excellent newsletter, Fintech Brain Food. If you're not reading it, you are not doing fintech correctly. So please rectify that. And Simon, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it, sir. Thanks for having me, Alex. This was fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fintech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest fintech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love fintech takes, please tell a friend.